0: Hello, and welcome to Economics for Rebels, the podcast of the European Society for Ecological Economics. Up until recently, it was an act of rebellion to pursue economics as if nature mattered and the earth was finite. This rebellion must bring a major shift to economic thinking. Our podcast is dedicated to exploring the economics of just and sustainable transformations In conversations with scientists, experts, activists, pushing for rapid and radical change for people and planet.
1: Welcome to our podcast. I'm today's host, Sufut Su and you're listening to the Economics for Rebels podcast. Some of the earliest work that led to today's ecological economics, such as the work of of Nicholas georgescu Rogan, explored the role of thermodynamics in the economy, which helped develop the understanding of the economy embedded wholly within the biosphere that lies at the heart of ecological economics. Since then, multiple fields have spun out of this early work, including exergy economics and discussions of the potential energetic limits to growth. But these can be complex to understand for those like me without a physics background. So we're very lucky to have today's guest to give us a tour of the basics of ecological economics and energy. Today, we welcome Dr. Paul Brockway from the University of Leeds onto the show. Paul has spent much of the last decade studying the ecological economics of energy systems with a broad focus on decarbonisation in the context of projected large increases in societal energy demand. So Paul, thanks so much for joining us.
2: No worries, Sophus. Pleasure to be here.
1: So Paul, how did you get interested in energy and the economy?
2: Well, I guess in in some ways I had a fairly conventional, normal kind of life up to a point. Um, School, university, did an engineering degree. And then I got a job as a structural engineer, design engineer, which I had for over 10 years. Uh, And then about 2005, I read Limits to Growth, a 30-year update. And I think my world kind of slightly turned upside down at that point. Probably the only book that I've read twice. And After reading it, I thought, oh, that doesn't look very good. And so I kind of decided to start to pivot away from my kind of design based engineering career through to look more to sustainability issues. And so I moved within my sort of engineering firm to be a sustainability consultant, looking at firm level, carbon emissions, footprinting, that kind of stuff and how to reduce them. But I think that probably wasn't still kind of scratching the itch, if you sort of mean. It was I was still worried at that time. and That's kind of over 10 years ago now about the idea of energy rebound, the idea that some or all of the planned energy savings from the introduction of new technology is taken back via a rebound effect. Because I thought, well, you know, we've had a lot of efficiency measures. We've got more more efficient cars and lighting and, you know, industries, processes got really efficient. So if we've had all those efficiency measures, why does global energy demand still keep going up? And so a lot of the stuff that I'd read had downplayed downplayed rebound. It had said it was quite small. But my gut kind of engineering sense meant that kind of didn't make sense. Something didn't kind of add up. And so I applied to, to do a PhD, which I started uh, 10 years ago, looking into Rebound. And that really got me into a whole world of looking at energy, economics and efficiency. And in a sense, 10 years later, I'm, I'm still digging. I helped set up an exchange economics network which any of you can check out on our website. Um, and we share research meeting progress and ha- really how to move forward in terms of a thermodynamic-based approach to look at the role of energy in in our economy.
1: Yeah, it's funny. So that book for me that moved me off a, a consultancy path and um, into ecological economics was uh, Prosperity Without Growth. It's very similar, that kind of like light bulb moment where you're like, hey, these things don't add up anymore. Um, so at a global scale, it's, it's predicted our demand for energy is, is going to rise hugely over the coming decades, um, even as we need to fully decarbonize energy production to tackle climate change. The kind of mainstream narrative is we can do this uh, through a huge rollout of, of renewable energy and, and through energy efficiency measures like you've talked about. And this sounds great. So why are ecological economists worried about this story?
2: Well, as you alluded to, it kind of starts with the obvious global crisis that we have, climate mitigation or the need for mitigation uh, and the, the urgent need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to avoid tripping over increasing temperature thresholds so to do that is it's probably a good thing what i tend to do is think about kind of essentially three basic levers to do that at a global scale we've got one lowering energy demand mainly via energy efficiency number two lots of renewables to displace fossil fuels. And number three, it's whatever's left. We've we've then got to turn to carbon sequestration. So a a way of storing carbon, either through natural means, which could be like afforestation, peatlands and things like that, or mechanical means, which basically sort of electricity powered machines, uh, which like direct air capture. And so as each year passes that we still have rising greenhouse gas emissions, our remaining carbon budget, get smaller. And so these levers, effectively all three of these levers have to work harder and harder. And so as an ecological economist, I'm really worried particularly about the efficiency lever because the research that we've done finds there's no historical reduction in energy from from efficiency. And yet in energy and climate models, it's a really large lever. So models are doing something very different from the past. But I guess the key point to say is that if this efficiency dial to reduce energy use doesn't work as well as models hope, then the other two dials, bearing in mind carbon sequestration is almost completely unproven at scale, have to work even harder. And that's that's a really big concern. As a former engineer, I'm kind of, that's really what makes me worried and causes me to dig into why this might be so and, and, and what can be done about it. So, I think that's sort of a, a global scale. And so what we've spent our time doing or what I've spent time with other researchers, I'm, I'm working on a five-year decoupling project at the moment. And one of the things that we, I guess, most important paper that we've published in this, in this time is is something we published in 2021, the open access paper, looking at rebound. And we found three really quite surprising results. Number one, as we suspected, there's a really big disconnect between historical and future GDP energy relationships. So in the past, there's really been quite a tight coupling of energy and economic growth. Let's think about this in the long term. So roughly over the past 50 years, GDP has grown at about 3% per year since 1970. And energy use has grown at about 2% per year. So that's called relative decoupling, where energy use grows, but not as much as GDP. And to me, that's still quite a tight coupling. And on their own, growth rates don't actually mean much to people what matters really is a doubling period. so as a useful rule of thumb if you take the number 70 and divide it by the growth rate that tells you the doubling period. So with the two percent energy growth rate year on year 70 divided by 2 is 35 so we get a 35 year doubling rate. so in 35 years time which will take us to 2050 at that current historical rate of of energy growth we'd need twice as much energy as we do now however, future models are increasingly showing this energy efficiency dial, demand reduction dial, working really hard. And so it's showing significant reductions in energy demand, which kind of makes sense in a way in that the models are saying, well, time's running out, right? So we've got all of these three levers, which we've talked about earlier. They all have to work harder and harder each year because if emissions are still rising, we've got to get down to zero and below zero by 2050 in order to meet our, our temperature targets. So whilst it makes a lot of sense, it it doesn't match the historical record. And this is where this kind of, the idea of of this great disconnect occurs. So that was the first big finding that we found in terms of the research was that we had this disconnect between the historical and future models. And the second thing was, we found was that rebound is actually, according to the work that's been done from a variety of papers that we've looked at, we looked at over 30 papers published over the last 10 years and found on average, their estimates of total rebound were more like 60 or 70% on average. So that means that we only get about one third of the savings that we planned for. And in fact, some of the models were suggesting we had over 100% rebound. So energy efficiency was actually causing increases to energy use, not reductions. So those two things together are pieces of the jigsaw. The third key bit is when we lifted the lid on the models, we found there was really not much rebound included at all. And that really gets to the heart of the issue with mainstream modelling, that they generally lack a meaningful link between energy and the economy. That means they can't have rebound channels that feed energy back into the economy, which is why they can show much lower energy use in their forecast in the future without any economic penalty. So the work that we're doing on sort of energy and rebound really gets to the heart of of what's going on in sort of mainstream approaches and why they can have such optimistic reductions in energy. And that's what makes me kind of nervous about the, the work that is done to support the evidence base for the IPCC is a lot of it is founded on models which don't have anything like the true relationship of energy and economic growth, which means when they turn the efficiency dial, they get lots of energy reduction.
1: Yeah, that is so interesting. So um, if these economy-wide rebound effects are so pervasive, what kind of policies are you talking about that we could potentially use to transition our energy system to one that's fully decarbonized?
2: I guess there's a couple of things. So if we take the idea that there's large rebound effects in the system, then if the, the work that we do at country level says, well, actually we've done, the re- we've done the work and rebound is maybe like 50%, let's say. So then you've got a couple of options. You could you know, double the level of ambition for efficiency policies to still get the savings that you want. You could introduce carbon taxes in order to capture some of those economic savings before they get back in to the economy and start propagating through and feeding back in energy rebound effects. But if the rebound is really much higher, is 100% or even over 100%. So some of the work we did a few years ago was we built a macro economic model where we introduced a much closer link between energy and economic growth. And what we found was that we could explain about a third of UK economic growth over the past 50 years was just from gains in efficiency themselves. So this was, in effect, as Bob Ayers, one of our founding fathers in this space, said, it's, it's really efficiency is the key growth engine, going all the way back to, to the work of, of Jevons back in the 1860s. The efficiency gains driving economic growth, that, that's something which economists like, right? So they say, oh, yeah, that's really good. Obviously, if we have lots of efficiency, we're going to get economic growth. But remember that energy and economic growth, if they're tied quite closely, tied together, and you're driving economic growth, then by default, you're probably going to be driving energy use up higher than it would be in that case. And I think for the ecological economists, that's where it gets really interesting because I think the work that we've done in the last kind of 10 or so years is now starting to land in a place where post-growth and degrowth scholars have kind of not waiting for this kind of empirical data to arrive, but I think it really helps their argument because a lot of the stuff that's been made in the past about redistribution and making sure that we can live, we can move beyond GDP, I think this, this adds another... Tool to their armory, or another argument to their rationale, to say, okay, if energy and economic growth are so closely tied together, and we just can't shake this rebound stuff, it's too pervasive. It goes back in in three basic channels. We've got a direct rebound effect where I drive a car further because I bought a more fuel efficient car. Indirect rebound, so I respend some of the savings on something else because I still haven't spent all the savings. I might buy it another holiday or go for, go for a meal out. And then there's kind of economy wide production-sided rebound effects. So adding all those in means that we get to a point where if those rebound effects are so large and energy and economic growth are so closely tied together, well, we probably need to move into that post-growth space where we're planning to live under a lower state of economic output. And that is, that is, I think, something which which helps the arguments of many sort of ecological economists who are really interested in the post-growth space, saying, actually, there's a good energy reason why we need to look at this post-growth space. It was not just a moral argument of we need to redistribute and live within our means a bit more. There's actually an energy-based efficiency argument as well.
1: So just to prod a little bit further, what kinds of discussions have you had with mainstream economists about the relationship between the environment and energy?
2: What you see is there's this kind of different types of models. So on the economic side, you've got those computational general equilibrium models called CG models, and they have quite a strong role for the economy, but a really weak linkage to energy. It doesn't have much interaction except through prices at the final stage of energy. And on the other side, you've got on the engineering or energy side, you've got very technologically rich energy models with then quite a weak linkage to the economy. So the energy models are quite good at looking at Bringing in forecasts of change of, of how much PV and wind is going to come on stream and how quickly and deployment deployment rates and all that stuff, but it doesn't ha- it doesn't link to economic growth. So the two things, two types of sort of incumbent models, if you see if you see what I mean, they almost sort of continue. So the the economic sided ones speak to the economics based policymakers. Who want to know about what happens when you do investment for EVs and how how is that going to be propagated through the economy? While the technological based ones are looking at deployment rates and, and rates of change of, of technologies, but right in the middle, which is where sort of I sit with other researchers in this Exige economic space, is where we fundamentally have been unpicking the much larger role of energy in economic growth than anybody in, the, in those two mainstream spaces thinks and. And some of the work we, we've needed to do, so I, I come at it from an engineering background, I'm not a physicist, I'm not an economist, is working with other people who've kind of gravitated towards the middle, where to have a really good understanding of what's happening in those relationships between energy and economic growth and vice versa and the role of efficiency much larger than we think in economic growth. We kind of need some of these people to kind of get together because just being a physicist and understanding what exergy means isn't enough. You need that economic base. And so you need all these skill sets to sit at the middle and build models and understanding. And then you can start to reach out to the models themselves, which is, sorry, I've got slightly diverted, but that's, that's where your question started from. I think the mainstream people, essentially, they're not that interested. Like if I'm being brutal, particularly the economist side, because... In a way, they've got their models that policymakers are quite happy to hear. That Everybody wants to hear, or policymakers want to hear about green growth and green economy. And so the models can tell them that. It can tell them GDP can go up and energy can go down because there's no connection or lack of connection between energy and economic growth. So in a way, we're coming with information which doesn't help them, doesn't solve any of the issues that they're they're doing. And in in a way, it's a kind of a bit of a hindrance to their existing, in effect, the status quo of research funding, which is aimed at looking at green economy type work productivity how do we improve labor productivity and standards sort of mainstream economic questions and for that they've got mainstream economic models so if you're coming along in the middle and saying well hang on i don't think these mainstream approaches are working in general i don't get a very good reception but some of the people that have spent time in that space do come over or have come over and they as you probably found in in your working space and others in the ecological economics community is Some people haven't started in this space. They've started in mainstream spaces and realised after a certain point, hang on, this doesn't make sense. Something's not right here. And then they've understood and they get into the ecological economic space and and they can inhabit the kind of space where we are in in, in economics.
1: So, we'll get on to some of the, the interesting technical debates and definitions of exergy economics and, and that kind of stuff in a bit. But, really quickly, just to follow up, um, can you quickly summarize the, the empirical relationships between energy and economic growth? You've talked a little bit about efficiency, but what is the kind of interconnections between the amount of energy in the economy and economic growth?
2: Yeah, so we've, having said that the mainstream people aren't, aren't interested, we've tried to use, in some of the work we've been doing, we've tried to use, in effect, the way that they quantify. GDP. So they look at effectively having two factors of production generally, capital and labour as the two inputs to production. So what we've done is we've introduced energy as a third variable, which other people have tried to do in the past, but tend to look at what happens at this final stage of energy. So you've got th- primary and final stage. So you've got three stages of energy conversion. You've got primary stage, which is like coal or gas found in its raw state. You've got final energy, which is like your purchased fuel. So that'd be like electricity, diesel, gas that you burn in your home. And then you've got the useful stage where it's to go through some energy conversion device, like a light bulb, a car, boiler, whatever, and produces effectively the useful service that you're looking for. If we measure it at that last stage, we've got a much better quantification of the energy use at that last stage and a much better thermodynamic quantification of what efficiency is. So... If we look at efficiency in a thermodynamic sense, we've got into this production function to explain economic growth. We can put capital, as everyone else does, we can put labour, but we can also put the different stages of energy in terms of either final or useful, and we can put that final to useful efficiency conversion stage. So we can measure annual changes at the country level and put that into the model as well. And what we find is and so just stepping back one bit, is that the mainstream approaches to to look at economic growth don't explain all of economic growth through their two production factors, labour and capital. That's why energy potentially plays such a big role, because what they call it is the the remaining bit is what they call total factor productivity, or sort of this exogenous kind of variable that they can't quantify, but they they kind of take it as they call it kind of technical progress, but. We've done testing which shows, and particularly the work of the people in Lisbon, in IST, uh, have done a lot of work to look at the annual changes in final to useful efficiency at a, at a country level as a proxy for this missing component of economic growth. So labour capital and efficiency. And I think in the way that we've quantified, we've done work looking at the UK, and we've done work looking at Portugal, and I think we're both finding that the orders of magnitude contributions towards economic growth are probably capital first then efficiency and slash sort of energy but mainly efficiency the growth of energy leads to higher economic growth which pulls through more energy use and then lastly is the input of labour so that kind of explains the 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 missing part and quite significant part of economic growth that's missing in in mainstream models just by having labour and capital in their models
1: yeah i mean that is completely fascinating. And again, like kind of earth shattering for mainstream economists and conventional macroeconomic growth theory. So one of the concepts that you touched upon here is one of the the concepts that I think a lot of ecological economists, I mean, like myself, have have the most trouble getting to grips with, and that's the, the thermodynamic limits to the economy. So I've heard ecological economists say that the degradation of high entropy materials and energy into low entropy materials and energy acts as a kind of fundamental limit on how big the economy can be. But I've heard mainstream voices say that we'll always be able to meet our energy needs by more efficiently you know, capturing energy from the sun or whatever. So do you mind unpacking this debate for us in, in simple terms?
2: Yeah, I think so for me, my starting point is I always say to people, well, we only live on one planet. And so in effect there are biophysical limits either to inputs to our planet in terms of materials or energy inputs or in terms of the outputs and the impacts that that have and that's like pollution and things like that so that's where I guess the kind of limits to growth type research was in the 1970s that highlighted well hang on we can't keep doing this because we're going to reach some limit either an output limit or effectively an input constraint and that's why Mainstream economists responded and tried to shut down the debate because they didn't agree with with the way that these models have been set up. And even though they've been shown, even forty years later, that actually they gave pretty reliable estimates of uh, trajectories in terms of the inputs and outputs to the system. So, okay, go back to the doubling thing. I think that's the next point. Is so GDP we've said exists and it's been growing about. Um, 3% per year, even if we said it was growing at 2% per year in the future, because everybody knows things are slowing down. We tend to find that OECD rates of GDP are slowing down more than the growing economies. And so if we take GDP as a proxy for processing of physical stuff, so materials, energy, food, then even at a 2% global average, that doubles our consumption of stuff every 35 years. Remember, 70 divided by 2. So we'd need double the amount of materials and goods and resources per year in 35 years in that case. That means we'd need two times two. We'd need four times that amount as today in 70 years. We'd need eight times in 100 years. In 200 years, we'd need 64 times the amount of stuff, the physical throughput of goods, energy, materials, etc. each year. And in 300 years, it would be over 500 times the size of the economy is now. And yet still economists don't understand that at some point we will have this limit. And it could be, you know, we could have a limit, you know, there is obviously a lot of sun that comes through and maybe we can we can harness that sun, but how much how much access do we have to lithium or land for food? And so and how many people do you need to support? So at some point over the next 35, 70, 100 years, whatever it is, this doubling rate will get us into trouble and really quickly. And, and it reminds me of the work of Al Bartlett, who's now deceased from the, in the US. And he said that the greatest shortcoming of the human race is the failure to understand the exponential function. And this is what this doubling rate means. This, all this 2% growth rate is, or 3% growth rate, is essentially an exponential function property of the doubling rate of the consumption of materials and goods and services in the case of GDP as its proxy. So the key property is things get out of hand really quickly. And that's almost when it's too late to react. And we're seeing some of that in, in terms of the outputs in terms of how close and our proximity we are to overstepping planetary limits related to greenhouse gas emissions. But I think we're also approaching some of those limits in terms of the physical conversion of stuff, how many materials we'll need to find, how much? How many of the critical materials and minerals we'll need to find to supply even the, the renewables that we're going to need in the future.
1: Okay, Paul, so uh, what do ecological economists need to know about the concept of exergy?
2: Okay, so exergy is a word that many of you listening probably won't have heard of, but essentially it's a tighter, more thermodynamic way of measuring energy. It's a way of measuring energy. Everybody kind of understands what they think they mean by energy, but in terms of quantifying it and the work that can be done, we need to move to a tighter definition. That's where exergy comes in. So exergy essentially is just a measure of the amount of physical work that could be done by an energy carrier which could be electricity coal gas or whatever. So we need to as I alluded to earlier we need to think about three energy conversion stages. We've got primary energy, coal gas, we've got final energy, the purchase fuel, and then the useful stage where we we exchange that energy conversion for the energy service that we want and then going through to sort of human well-being and human needs. So think of a car as an example. The petrol or diesel that you put into the car that's final energy, right? but only about a quarter of it is converted to what we would sort of call useful work. This is at the useful stage, which is only a quarter is moving the car forward. The rest is lost in conversion losses and heat and vibrations and stuff like that. With the EVs, it's it's higher, it's up to 75, 80%. But the point is that not all of it is converted through to useful work. And so the work that we've done in our, our research communities is to look at energy conversion all the way through to the useful stage and look at it across devices. So we look We look at all the residential appliances, we look at boilers and refrigerators and lights, all that stuff, look at industry, the machines that are done, creating the products that we buy, look at transportation, we look at commercial services, all the ICT that's used, and look at the particularly that final to useful conversion stage, adding up all of that useful work, all of that useful exergy, and then we divide it by the final stage input, and then we've got a measure of thermodynamic efficiency for the whole economy. Basically, the sum of the useful work that's done divided by the final energy input gives us that measure of thermodynamic efficiency for entire economies. And that's really useful because, as we talked about earlier, we can put that directly into economic models that we've built to try and understand what's the role of efficiency in economic growth. And it offers a real alternative to what going back to the mainstream, but the International Energy Agency, policymakers, economists, when they talk of energy efficiency, when you go onto the IEA's website and look at efficiency progress, what they're actually doing is they're equating efficiency use to energy intensity changes. So they're looking at change in energy use divided by change in GDP. Because in the absence of a thermodynamic way of looking at energy, all you've got at an aggregate country scale is you've got total energy use and you've got total GDP. So recalling that we had average growth in energy is 2% per year upwards globally and average growth in GDP is 3%. 2% divided by 3% means we've got an average energy efficiency improvement, as they would call it, which is really an energy intensity improvement of 1% per year. And so we have a very different approach to, to efficiency, but we can only get at it by the use of our exergy based approach to to measure the productive work that's done through effectively each energy conversion device type of device that we have across entire economies and so it gives it gives us the ability to produce a thermodynamic definition of energy efficiency
1: so what's the difference between exergy analysis and energy efficiency
2: so i mean in a way they're quite related overlapping in a way the exergy analysis is, is it's the way of formally quantifying the, the potential of energy so energy sources at each stage to do physical work as you go from primary to final and final to useful. But energy efficiency, if we step back, I in some of the work that we do, we, we talk of energy efficiency, but in a way what we're meaning is we're meaning thermodynamic-based energy efficiency as opposed to the IEA and mainstream economists who talk about energy efficiency, whereas really what they mean, when you look at their metrics, they're dividing change in energy divided by change in GDP, which is an economic based intensity. so under the umbrella of energy efficiency, we've got exergy analysis to provide a thermodynamic means of assessing what that metric is. so for an entire economy, overall exergy based methods of calculating what the overall efficiency is for for an economy something around fifteen to twenty percent for depending whether you're final to useful or primary to 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 useful stages, but much lower than you would think in terms of energy efficiency, because most people think of their boilers and they might think of lights as being super efficient. But actually when you look at, particularly the works done for low temperature heating and, and low temperature cooling, ICT, they're really quite low efficiencies when measured on an exergy basis.
1: So when I read some of your work, there were some pretty transformative findings, things that transformed the way that I saw the world just a little bit. I'd like to, to ask a little bit about one of them. So what are the conclusions when you start viewing recycling or narratives about the circular economy from the perspectives of exergy?
2: So, I mean, thermodynamically, we know that it's not possible, right? We can't have a circular economy because you've effectively got a perpetual motion machine that requires no inputs. So, it violates the laws of thermodynamics. But in principle, I guess what I'm trying to decouple here is the idea of materials versus energy. And so, yes, you could have material recycling, which works at a very good level of of recycling, although some of the materials do get degraded upon recycling. So not everything is translated back into its original state, but things like aluminium and steel are pretty good. But you still need energy inputs to make that giant recycling machine work. So if you think about how many wind turbines and how many phones and PV panels we're going to need? Actually, getting the critical materials back out of those—it's it, that requires a significant energetic input. So, I get a little bit—I also—I get a little bit worried when, again, going back to the mainstream, but when when the popular kind of policymakers are focusing on the circular economy, when it becomes something that business starts to embrace, that worries me a little bit that maybe it's not quite as good as it is advertised, if you sort of I mean. So when you look under the lid, in terms of energy inputs, there's nothing really to say that that we're going to be saving huge amounts from circular economy. If we require lots and lots of energy to to recycle and split things apart because they've been produced in a way that doesn't allow for easy recycling, then, we, then on an energy perspective, I'm not convinced that, that we're really going to be saving much energy at all, even if we are saving virgin materials from being extracted through the recycling process. So there is a role for the circular economy, but I don't think certainly on an energy basis that it's not something which is going to push us down in an energy demand sense to get to this low energy future where those key levers are low energy demand, renewables and Carbon sequestration; that the lower energy demand is going to be driven by a switch to a circular economy.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting finding. So, to move on to an- another area of your work, what's EROI? What's the energy return on
2: investment? So, EROI is uh, essentially it's a it's kind of as it says on is on the tin. It's a it's a ratio of the energy returned versus the amount of energy invested. So. What we mean is that, so, okay, let's have a classic example that if we took one barrel of oil to extract 10 barrels of oil, then the ratio would be the energy returned, which is 10 barrels, divided by the energy invested, which is one barrel. So the ratio would be 10 to one. And essentially it gives you a measure, particularly it was used, it was developed in the 1970s through by Charles Hall and colleagues when he looked at uh, the amount of energy required for annual fish migration and then is moved to look at the study of fossil fuels particularly extraction for like oil coal and gas fields to see what the error values were for those large fossil fuels and so in principle a high aero value is good because it means we don't need much energy to get lot of energy out and a low error value isn't very good because the closer that gets to one-to-one if it's one-to-one then all the energy goes back to produce the next bit of energy and we wouldn't have any coming out into society. So what we call the net energy available for society, we wouldn't have any at all. So we don't want EROI to be super low. And in the past, studies have shown that the conventional view of fossil fuels is that they're really high and that renewables has been quite low. But that's something which I think is now being counted. And certainly some of the research we've done starts to butt up against that and say that's not necessarily true.
1: So what are the implications if if that's not necessarily true?
2: Well again, in a way we've sort of moved on a little bit because a lot of some of the stuff about eroi was brought up in in effect in the sort of the climate mitigation space of like, but 10 years ago, when we were saying, you know, should we be having lots of renewables? Isn't there going to be this big energetic cost? You know, in effect it was another kind of lever that the fossil fuel protagonist or fossil fuel lobby would say well if we switch away from fossil fuels we're going to have this kind of this net energy cliff where we go to renewables and they're super low and that means there's no energy available for the rest of the economy and life's going to be terrible but actually i think what what was fundamentally wrong is that the people were looking at the aero values in different stages so that the fossil fuel aero values classically would be somewhere between 30 50 maybe even up to 80 for coal but those are at the primary energy stage. So, how much energy do you need to extract all this stuff? But it doesn't then look at the next stage when we push to the final energy stage of then converting to electricity or diesel, petrol, gas for home use. The values are much more like five to ten for fossil fuels, as the work that we published back in about 2019 in uh, in Nature Energy showed. And And what we then went on to see is that those values have been declining for some time as fossil fuels have become harder to reach, needing more effort to extract and refine. But meantime, renewables airway studies are potentially not really that far away from what the fossil fuels are. I mean, they're much broader in terms of range. I think that's fair to say, because... It really depends on what type of study people have done, what their boundary is, because a lot of it is based around life cycle analysis. You start with a PV panel and then you have to work out where all those materials come from and how much energy is required to make the materials and then process it and make the panel, how much sun there is and how much it gets used in a year, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, typically PV and wind aeroid values is somewhere probably between like three and 20, probably in the middle of that range. So, Although swapping to renewables, I don't think is going to, well, firstly, I don't think it's going to get us to this kind of this net energy cliff thing, which is what people were worried about years ago. And I think, secondly, with renewables now becoming much more efficient, so economies of scale, wind turbines, as they get much bigger, as economies of scale go for PV panels, I think we also find that EROI might actually be going back up. And so we might pass each other on the EROI scale that aeroid for renewables is pretty similar values and going up whereas fossil fuels are similar values and going down so now is probably a good time to be on an arrow basis to be swapping over from fossil fuels to to renewables and just to add one thing that that also ignores the move to the useful stage so some of the research that uh, myself and others have been doing has been looking at aeroid at the useful stage so remember the car again so Let's say that the aeroid value for diesel and renewables-based electricity were like five to one, right? So you produce diesel, that's five to one. Electricity from PV or wind in whichever country you are is also five to one. Well, the efficiency of the internal combustion engine car is like 30, 35%. And for an EV car, it's maybe 70%. So at the useful stage, the renewables-based EV car has twice the aeroid ratio of the diesel internal combustion engine car. So even although we've tried to move things forward and align things so that they, we've got an apples versus apples comparison at the final stage, I think the next stage of looking at Aeroi is actually moving forwards, particularly with the renewables-based stuff and looking at that useful stage. And I think then we'll find an even better comparison for renewables that are probably higher Aeroi values than the fossil fuels have been all this time.
1: So are there any kind of high level quantified relationships between eroi and economic growth or societal progress
2: not in the same way that we've done with sort of efficiency this final to useful efficiency thing in in some ways the erois story is more at this primary to final stage classically with with fossil fuels but if you can think of an eco- if you can think of an energy economy model it is it is a constraint to economic growth if the aero values are are low enough. So you can think of the net energy that's going into society being constrained if the aero values are getting down to, you know, four, three, two, those sort of values, then the energy system has to work so hard to produce the societal energy that we that we need. So at the moment I think it's it's not like it's it's useful to have it in terms of the modeling because it gives you another dial to look at in the future. But I think it's also the case at the moment Error is not the thing that's necessarily constraining and explaining why, for example, the OECD growth rates have been slowing down in terms of GDP in previous years. What we found is actually it's this final to useful, the energy conversion of the final energy into useful stage stuff. That's the thing that's been driving economic growth in the past. It explains why economic growth has been rapidly rising in the past for growing economies, but it also explains If efficiency has a large role in economic growth, then it also explains when you're constraining and slowing down gains in efficiency as technologies mature and as we get to things, what we call efficiency dilution. So we use more, less efficient processes like ICT, air conditioning, low temperature heating. That means with lower gains to energy efficiency, this final to useful efficiency, then we're in a place for the OECD countries where, we're taking out some of the things that's been causing our economies to grow in the past. So I think in answer to the question about EROI, like I think it's important to have it in future models. But I don't think at the moment it's the thing that's really altering or changing the way that economies uh, react and grow in the future.
1: Amazing, Paul. So, I mean, thanks so much for this conversation. It's been so interesting. The final question we always ask our guests is, what is your rebellion?
2: I think you've probably been picking up on it during the, during the podcast. I think fighting the mainstream, if that's not kind of overstating it, um, you know, we need people in different places, right? We can't all be out on the streets and you can follow me on Twitter, but I don't have that many followers, you know? So I think we need people doing different things. And in my case, I think I've found a place where I can help push on the science, fundamental, uncomfortable science and find things that are uncomfortable. So I got into the Rebound stuff like 10 years ago, hoping to find that Rebound was small and the models were working fine. But actually what I found is that Rebound is large, the models aren't working properly, and that there's a mainstream kind of modelling, funding, policy making perpetual motion machine that needs to be disrupted so that if the models aren't working properly and yet they're the ones that are responding to research funding, who are responding to policymakers who want green growth solutions – and the whole world actually needs to look at things very differently and move to something like a post-growth space, then I think the, the place where I inhabit and the rest of my extra economics community, I think it's a really valuable place to be. And I think we just need to keep keep fighting the mainstream where, where we have to in order to get change.
1: Amazing. That's a brilliant place to leave it. So many thanks, Paul, for for joining us. And thanks to all of you for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for our next episode.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast series of the European Society for Ecological Economics. If you like the conversation and your work is related to ecological economics in any discipline, consider becoming a member of our society to stay connected. If you are ready to discuss the topic, join our Facebook group called European Society for Ecological Economics.